Hello and welcome to another episode of For the Love of Sports. My name is Michael Raziel and my guest today is Jason Ray. He's the founder and CEO of Zenith Solutions. He's also a former one division, former division one football player at Princeton. He was all Ivy League. He was a 2013 Ivy League champ and he is an awesome guest on For the Love of Sports. Jason was absolutely fantastic. His live stream has been viewed over a thousand times already as of recording this intro. So very grateful I had him on just because he's such a nice dude. Honestly, just such a nice person. And I absolutely loved it. So I hope you enjoyed this episode with Jason Ray. Hello and welcome to the For Thank the you. Love of Sports. Oh, Jason, I haven't gotten to introducing you yet. Give me one second, man. This is my show. No, I'm kidding, of course. Today I have Jason Ray, a CEO and founder of Zenith Solutions, former Division One football player at Princeton, as you can see if you're watching. Uh, all Ivy League team, 2013 Ivy League champs. Jason, how are you today? I'm doing well, Michael. Thanks for having me on the show. Pleasure is all mine. As I told you before, this is my favorite thing I get to do. Get to ask super smart people like you questions, get to talk about football. I mean, I don't think it can get any better than this. But Jason, the first question I have for everybody on the For the Love of Sports podcast is, why do you love sports so much? I love the team aspect of sports. Um, I love accomplishing things with other people that are greater than what I could accomplish on my own. Um, I will say that I do play golf. And, um, you know, I, I do engage in some individual sports, but I consider those more games like football, basketball, um, even track and field. Um, I love the, the, the concept that we can achieve something as a greater unit um, than I could just do on my own. So I miss sports. I miss seeing the camaraderie on TV and me being able to play my own pickup basketball and flag football leagues here in uh, Philadelphia. But, uh, you know, I'm, I'm hopeful that we'll, we'll get back there soon. We'll get back there soon. That's the one thing. Uh, you know, I talked to a lot of people in sports. We'll be back, as Wayne Kimmel of um, 76 Capital does say. And so I think, you know, you, you bring up a really good point, especially in, you know, in golf, in tennis. You, you know, you're you're kind of on your own track and field. You're on your own. You obviously have a team that you work with in most capacities. But when it comes to the team sports, there's that extra bond. There's that extra layer because if you don't do your job right, I can't do my job right. And then we all know it falls apart, right? Especially in football, that specifically, you have to have 11 guys doing the, the the correct job all at the same time to make sure this thing works. And and so I really like the point that you bring up that, you know, there's, there's that bond, there's that camaraderie. What does playing sports, especially like, like football, where everybody has a job and you all have a role on the team, how, how does that help develop relationships? Uh, something that I know you're very good at. Yeah, so... Football really shows you how to do your job well so that your other teammates can succeed, right? So I played outside linebacker, and one of my primary responsibilities was to, uh, if the ball was getting run my way, like take out the blocker on the inside and make the running back or the ball carrier bounce out to the outside so my teammate could make the tackle. And if I didn't do my job well, my teammate couldn't make the tackle, and everything kind of went awry, right? And as it relates to personal relationships or business relationships, 
um, it teaches you like how to sacrifice yourself for the greater good and sacrifice your own desires to have, you know, a, a better outcome for um, your team or your friends or your parents or your church, um, your company, your clients, right? So I love the lessons that I learned from football. That's that's just one of the many, but um, you're absolutely right. It's, it's all about the greater good. And um, you, I think sports, it reinforces that more than, than other things in, uh, in society. I completely agree. There's there's not too many things like sports, and it's a weird spot we're in. I've been watching a lot of Korean baseball recently because it's on. Uh, I wake up at like 6.15 in the morning, and I go out, make my cup of coffee, and throw that on in the background. So it's at least something. I don't know who's playing. I don't know what the heck's going on, but it is, it's at least something. And hopefully, as you said, sports will be back soon, and we can get back to it. So how um your football story, I mean, going to Princeton obviously is impressive on its own. Playing, playing football there, being all Ivy League, being all conference, winning an Ivy League championship there makes it just a little bit cooler. So before, you know, how, getting into that process, how many schools did you have the opportunity to potentially go to uh, in, on the Division One level? That's a great question. Yeah, I feel super blessed that I was able to attend Princeton. Um, I had a great experience there. It wasn't an easy decision. Um, I'll take it back to my high school days. I went to Detroit Country Day High School. Um, the, the, I guess the alma mater, Shane Bettier and, uh, Chris Weber. Oh, I'm a big Duke uh, fan. That's awesome, man. Thank you okay, for that. Yeah. I appreciate it. Absolutely. So, um, yeah, rich basketball history, um, rich football history. We had uh, a few all Americans that were, um, on the football team with me when I was there, same in basketball. We won a state championship with some all Americans that I was lucky enough to play with. Um, so I say this to say, you know, there were a lot of recruiters and, you know, colleges that were on site uh, at all times. I can really cre- probably credit my recruitment to Jonas Gray and Kenny Demons and Benny Fowler, who were all Americans and went to you know, Notre Dame, the Patriots, the, uh, Michigan State and uh, the Giants, right? So those guys really paved the way for, for me to get seen by school. So, you know, Michigan State was in the, was in the um, you know, the cards, um, Ball State, um, some other Mac schools. And then the Ivy League came in really late um, in the recruiting process. I, I thought I was going to end up at Toledo or Ball State or Michigan State. Um, but Harvard, uh, Penn, Princeton, Dartmouth um, were all choices. And at the end of the day, it really came down to Penn and Princeton. Um, I really liked the Penn coach, Al Bagnoli, at the time. He was a, he's an absolute legend in, the, in Ivy League football. Um, I think he may have the most um, uh, Ivy League championships, but mm-hmm. don't quote me on that. Um, and then, um, so there was a kind of that rich program history at Penn. Um, and then Princeton, actually, when I went on my trip, they just fired their entire coaching staff. So, uh, and then they hadn't won an Ivy League championship in a number of years. So um, it was two completely different programs. Um, but I really liked the opportunity to go to Princeton and, you know, have a fresh coaching staff and the coaches like didn't have any favorites. Um, I also, when I went and, you know, saw the campus, I, I really enjoyed it with my parents. Um, people seem focused and uh, I, I learned from some of the other athletes on the team that, you know, the competition was not just like in football, but also like in the classroom with you know, only a certain amount of A's getting given out. I don't think they do grade deflation anymore there, but they do. They, they did when I was there and, um, you know, it was just a lot of competition. So um, yeah, I ended up choosing Princeton. We were terrible my first two years. We um, we went one and nine um, under Coach mm-hmm. Bob Sarace two years straight. Yeah, it was awful. Penn beat us like 60-0 my freshman year. Um, and I, you know, I can't say the thought didn't cross my mind. I'd be like, man, you should have went to Penn. Um, 
but um, my junior year, we started to turn it around and uh, we went five and five. And then my senior year, we really kind of rallied together. We had a great group of underclassmen, um, but our, our senior class, class of 2014, was really special, I think. And um, we had somebody go to the NFL, Karan Reed, um, and he's still kind of, uh, we'll see if he signs this upcoming year, but he's had a nice career. Um, and um, yeah, we won the championship. We went eight and two. We beat our rivals. And um, yeah, it was it was a special season. That's awesome, man. That's awesome. And congratulations on all of that. I mean, I live about 20 minutes from Princeton. So I've been to the campus multiple oh, times, nice. went to a couple parties there. It looks like Hogwarts the first time you roll up there and you're just like, where am I? This place is like from like the ancient times. But it was it's so it's so cool there. And, you know, as you said, you know, it's the it's the competition on the field and off the field, which I think is really cool. Like Princeton is obviously known. All the Ivy League schools are very well known for their academics and, you know, kind of. I don't want to say get made fun of uh, for sports, but, you know, everyone kind of realizes what they are when it comes to sports. The opportunity really can't give out scholarships. So there's a lot of things that do hold them back. But in certain capacities, it's still, you know, if you have the opportunity to go to an Ivy League school, that is going to, you know, as you have to obviously put in the work, of course, but that's going to help carry you for the rest of your life. You can always put on that Princeton polo. So, yeah, I graduated from Princeton. There's only so many people on planet Earth that can say that. So it's just a little extra cachet, a little extra clout that gets involved too. But obviously the academics that come with it, I think are very important, of course. And so, I mean, with a team like Michigan State, with a team like Ball State, Toledo, these are legitimate schools. You know, you, you brought up the Mac, you know, everybody, you know, on Tuesday nights, uh, you know, Maction, everybody loves that stuff. So what was it just the opportunity to go to one of these Ivy League schools that really cut it for you? Um, understanding again, you know, you may have had some sort of scholarship to go to some of these other schools. Yeah, so I mean the 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 facilities. Let me just start by saying the facilities at Michigan State and even Toledo um, were excellent, you mm-hmm. know, and they you know they dwarf Princeton and Penn, right? I think those schools have had great you know facilities over time, and I'm certainly thankful. But it was nothing like the Big Ten or the MAC. Um, and yeah, you know, I, I I was really stuck on wanting to go to Michigan or Michigan State, and um, you know, my, my parents really shut that down early once the Ivy League schools came into the picture. So I cannot give any credit to myself. Um, I've been blessed to have two really supportive parents throughout my entire life. Um, they've taught me a ton of lessons um, and initially got me involved in sports and you know, taught me how to play golf when I was six and, you know, got me on the basketball court. So um, once uh, Princeton, Princeton was the first school to show up to one of my track practices junior year. And um you know, once I told my mom that they were there and I met the coach uh, after school, she she was like, you know, I, I actually think she told my high school coach not to uh, accept um, any schools outside of the Ivy League to talk to me at school. So like the others, I didn't hear from like Toledo or any other schools like after that. Um, so shout out to yeah. your mom. She, uh, she probably yeah. did the right thing. You know, maybe at the time you were a little pissed off about it, but, uh, at, at the time, uh, or now looking back on it, hindsight, of course, is 2020. And I think she made the right decision on that part. And like, so while you were there, you know, you kind of went over it terrible. The first two years started coming back that second year, 2013. And I'm pretty sure that's the year. Uh, when, when were you all Ivy league? What year was that? Was that your senior year? That was senior year. Okay. So senior um, so- year, you won the Ivy league championships and we're all Ivy league. That's correct. That's sweet, man. That is poetic. That's perfect it, way to get it. It was right? excellent. It was excellent. Um, it, it, one of the best memories of my of my life was that season. And we put in so much work in the off season. And we had some special guys on the team as well. It wasn't just me. Of a course. lot of my teammates set me up for success. Like I mentioned, I, 
I played right next to Karan Reed. He was getting triple teamed. I was, you know, kind of running scot free and, and making plays when I could. So it was really special. I, I will never forget it. And I really credited it to the hard work that we put in our coaching staff and, and the people that we had on the team. That that class, that group of 2014, we're all still friends. You know, the, those are a special group of guys that I will, you know, forever, you know, have a, have a really soft spot for and love. Absolutely. When you go through something like that, especially, you know, we were talking about that bond before, you're never going to lose that bond. You know, you'll always have those memories together. You'll always have, hey, do you guys remember when we won all Ivy League? You know, when you won the Ivy League championship, like that is, it only happens once a year. And, you know, in certain years, it might not happen. You know, hopefully we'll see what happens with this year and everything gets fine. But, you know, it only happens once a year and you get that opportunity. You're in the Princeton record books forever. You're always going to be there. And there's always just that bond between people especially as you said that class of 2014 you did this for four years together you guys went from one and nine one and nine five and five to eight and two so you were there from the bottom it's not like you showed up to a school like duke again i'm a big fan but i'll be honest it's not like you show up to a school like duke and it's like all right you're number one in the country just because of the name it's like no you actually right. had to work for it which i think is pretty cool too it is cool and we did work for it we worked hard and you mentioned the uh, the memories that come from that championship season they certainly are very vivid and um, rich in my in my memory but the memories of toiling in the weight room when we were one and nine and you know practically getting spat on by our coaches and fans um, it's what I remember even even more so it's certainly a special memory and there is beauty in the uh, in the struggle Absolutely. There always is. There always is. So after that year, I mean, kind of on top of the world, feeling really good. I know you told me personally when we had our call, you know, the poten- there was a, some potential to go play in the NFL. So like, how did that, what was that like? Did you try and, did you go to any pre-draft process? Did you go to the combine in any sort of capacity? Like what were you doing to get ready to see if, you know, playing in the NFL was an opportunity? Yeah. Going to the NFL was always a, a, a goal of mine. Um, basketball was certainly my first love, but I, I figured out that I was more talented and had a better shot, um, probably my junior year in high school. And I do better when I have a focus for the long term and, and there's a goal in the future. And the NFL was a great goal to have. Um, so early on in my career, I think my teammates probably noticed that I was really focused on getting better and improving my craft and watching film and trying to excel in the weight room because I, I could feel that there was a next level for myself. and. Again, testament to my parents who never really ruled it out. They're like, yeah, you could, you could go. Like, how's, how's the, you know, how are meetings? How is practice? Like, what, are you getting better? Um, were questions that they frequently asked me to, to, to make sure I still had the right mindset. Um, so senior year, because of the good season and because of my success individually, but also as, as a team, um, there were some camps and or, or uh, some some NFL teams that showed up uh, on campus to do measurements. Um, I, I will again credit that to Karan, like he was a, an obvious draft prospect, so they were certainly coming to see him first. But I got measured by a couple teams, the Redskins and the Seahawks, to name two. Um, and you know, I just I felt that uh, just based on that process, number one, they were far more interested in my teammate than me, but also. I, I did have a, a great internship the summer before uh, my senior year that opened my eyes to an area of business and finance that I, I wasn't really, I didn't know that existed uh, prior to that summer. And I really enjoyed it. And I thought that there was opportunity for myself to excel in that environment. And I did well kind of in the internship. And, you know, I, I kind of figured out that I could have success there just like I had had in sports growing up. 
So yeah, I made the decision to focus on writing my senior thesis. And um, I, ex I actually, right after the season, I accepted my full-time job offer to go back to Lincoln Financial Group where I interned. And that was kind of the turning point for me to say, I, I, I have another focus. I've got a, a, a different purpose than going to the NFL and playing. Um, I certainly wouldn't have gotten drafted. You know, there was no combine invite for myself, uh, but some other members of my team and the class before and the class below have had success, um, you know, making the roster kind of in, in training camp and, and showing up and being undrafted, uh, an undrafted free agent. Um, that, that was certainly a path for me. I, you know, I don't know if my, my coaches may say differently, but in my mind, it was definitely a path. But I, yeah, I chose against it. And I, I felt that, number one, I, I wanted to um, I wanted to excel in a different space that I that I found interesting. I think so. Just a couple things, uh, a couple points. You know, you, you bring up the fact that Quran was a, a clear prospect and sometimes that bodes well for other teammates. You know, you hear it every year in the draft. I'm a huge draft junkie, so I always I watch just about all of it, especially this year with nothing else on uh you always hear like oh you know this guy got noticed because his teammate on the other side and you know someone that goes in the first round you know his teammate then goes in like the fourth or the fifth and they're like yeah we kind of got to watch a lot of tape because they're on the field all the time so hey man yeah. however it happens it happens you were clearly good enough Perfect. to get measured so kudos to you there uh but yeah it, it, sometimes you need a little bit of help i guess is a good way to say it and you know, obviously, you know, you brought up your senior thesis. So I definitely want to touch upon that because I know that's obviously you put in a significant amount of time and it's very important to you. But what was it like just kind of being able to say like, OK, like you had this goal of going to the NFL. Was it a possibility? Sounds like you could have been an undrafted free agent in some capacity. But what was it like finally being able to say like, you know what, I'm going to let this go. You know, I'm not going to play football anymore and, and making that decision on your terms. That's a great question. I. um you know, I, I think it, it, it was really, it was, it was liberating almost, right? I'd spent so much of my life training and trying to become more athletic and flexible and more of a team player. Um, and once I kind of made that decision, I told my parents, they were a bit surprised, but they're, you know, they were supportive as always. And it, it felt really good. And it felt good to focus on, you know, finishing my year. I had a serious girlfriend who's not my wife at the time. So we got to spend a lot of time together, whereas I would have been like training for the draft. Mm -hmm. And I got to enjoy my friends in my my senior spring, right? I, I really built relationships with, the, you know, my teammates um, as we were all mostly finished, except for, you know, a couple of people that were still trying to go to the NFL. And, you know, we really enjoyed it and built like some really nice bonds that, that spring. So it, it felt good. Michael, you know, I didn't think it would. I thought I would be upset or, you know, some kind of like initially when I was considering the decision, I, I kind of felt like, oh, I, you know, I worked for nothing. And like this is but my my career looking back at it now, like my career ended with a with a bang. Right. Mm -hmm. Like highest accolades in the league and Ivy League championship, um, a bunch of happy supporters and people that were in my corner. So I have nothing to look back and regret and complain about. Um, so yeah, it felt really good. I'm happy to hear that. And so uh, I do want to, uh, you know, obviously this is, we can start getting into the finance aspect a little bit, but I know, again, the uh, the senior thesis that you wrote was very important to you. And I don't know, life-changing might be a little dramatic, but I know you did really take a lot from, you know, learning what you wrote about. So you, do you want to tell us a little bit about what that was? I, I did. So um, I appreciate you asking about it. Um, I wrote my senior thesis on um, neighborhood gang violence in um, in two particular cities, Detroit and Baltimore. And I tried to draw a correlation between school suspension policy in the city 
and um, uh, neighborhood gang activity. Um, it was a pretty, there was some correlation there, but I, I wouldn't consider it significant. Um, I'll let you read the full paper to, to see if, you know, you, if you think all 80, whatever pages of it to, to see if you think it's strong, but. Can you give me the um, spark notes maybe? I think that yeah, might help me a little bit. All right. So, yeah. So, I mean, I, I basically said schools that have a no tolerance school suspension policy um, are in kind of underserved or minority communities. And as a result of that policy, because the school doesn't have resources to either detain the kids inside of school or, you know, they, they really just want to have less kids in the school because they have less resources. So they kick the kids out on the street and then the kids engage in some kind of neighborhood gang based uh, activity. Mm-hmm. Right. And those two cities in particular had really strong school suspension, no tolerance policies and the activity of you know, just really organic gang violence was really prominent and prevalent in those cities. And on a nationwide scale, gang activity was really dominated by large gang, national gangs that were moving into different communities and recruiting members and pulling kids out of school. But in these two cities, there was very little national gang activity and a lot of just local organic gang. So I, I really cared about um, why this was happening and how it could be avoided. So Baltimore um, actually started, they, they, they stopped the no tolerance policy um, or kind of phased it out. And the neighborhood kind of organic gang activity slowed down. So there, you know, I think that there was a correlation. I, I really uh, found joy in working with the Detroit Police Department and like other people that were in the city of Detroit, which is obviously my hometown, like, um, you know, just kind of on how I can make the argument and, and, and show them something that could potentially make a change in their own policies in school district um and other people's I, I, lives right you you, you know and I'm people's not, lives right I you think, know, yeah you're, you're saving you're through you through this paper through teaching others you now have the opportunity to save and help a lot of these kids that in other situations they would have as you said been thrown on the street and in most situations it turns out maybe most isn't the right the correct term but in many different situations they end up uh involving themselves in the in the organic neighborhood gang activities Absolutely. You said that really eloquently. I just um, said all the words yeah. you said. So thank you. It's all you, man. It's all you. <laughs> um, uh, but, yeah, no, no, that's exactly right. And I, I think it's awesome, man. And so how I, I know, again, you, you brought this up to me on the phone call and there was clearly a reason for it. So how did you then, you know, after going through this and learning, and as you said, working with the police department and learning what these kids go through, how did this then affect your financial career? Because I know you went to Lincoln Financial and you really enjoyed it and you liked it, but you realized that there was some other stuff that could be done. So was was there any connection or correlation between, you know, what you did in that senior thesis to what you're potentially doing now or what you're trying to get into? Yes, I think there's a big correlation. And I think it's just my, my own personal values of trying to um, improve um, the lifestyle or the access in underserved communities. Um, in minority communities um, to improve it and, you know, make it better. So, um, yeah, I, I started working at Lincoln Financial and our, our products, we we sold products, insurance and annuity products to financial mm-hmm. advisors. Um, so I got to understand what financial advisors were doing and the ways that they were adding value to their clients and who they were serving. It was really interesting to me. And I also just wanted to learn about the insurance space because I thought it was a way to create wealth, um, which I had been focused on, you know, since college. And um, I, I went from Lincoln to work at FS Investments, which is an alternative investment firm here in Philadelphia. 
I raise money for private credit and um, energy and private equity funds. And we sold these products and these funds to financial advisors. So I worked with about a hundred or sorry, a thousand advisors in this area. And I really got to see like how they were growing their business, who they were serving, what was making them successful and what wasn't. And it was very clear. And I had started to notice this at Lincoln, but they were really serving the same populations, right? Of people that were $500,000 or a million dollars in net worth. All the, or most of the financial advisors were old, right? Over 55 years old. And they were pretty much giving them all the same services. So it was a very commoditized offering that they were providing to these clients. So I felt like, number one, I'm not old, right? And I can bring a different perspective to the business. So I, I think I could have success in the space. Mm-hmm. But number two, like, what about the people who can't afford to work with these advisors? Like, they don't have the minimums or... Like, do they not have access to these alternative investment products or these insurance products that can help that like life insurance as you know save people's lives, right? And like alternative investments have had have helped people like get to a different stratosphere of wealth in their life and avoid taxes and do all these other things. So what about the people who can't work with these advisors? So I went to go work with um, a firm that I sold product to at FS here in the Philadelphia area, Carnegie Wealth Management. There was like a, a a busted succession plan, really, and the new buyer who came in to to purchase the firm noticed that I had been doing client events and other things with the clients. I, I knew the clients relatively mm-hmm. well, and he asked me to come on and help him modernize the firm and and include technology and you know compliance and all this stuff. So I thought it was really interesting, and I'm like, yeah, this this would be great. I, I I've been interested in the advisory space, you know, since I graduated college, and I think I could enter it. This is a great way to enter and learn. So. You know, once I was there, we did all this modernization and we moved our clients from old business to new and everybody was happy. But our average client, their net worth was like $18 million. Um, you know, and I, I found average? that average net worth, $18 million. And I found that, um, you know, m- people that were in my family or friend group or just broader community asking me for advice on social media or you know, in person or mm-hmm. calling me, whatever. And I, I, I literally couldn't serve them because they didn't meet our, our yeah. net worth or investable assets minimum. And it was really frustrating because that answered my question. Like, what about these other people that were these advisors I was working with were not serving? Now I know they're not getting served, right? So everybody uh, deserves the ability to create wealth, right? Building wealth should be simple. It shouldn't be an access problem. It should be like a motivation, like a self mm-hmm you know, a self-motivation problem. So um, I started Zenith to serve that that community of people that are underserved by traditional financial services. And who is that? That's that's typically young people or minorities or students. Um, you know, we, we don't discriminate who we work with, but I think we, we attract people that, you know, can't go to Morgan Stanley and get financial advice from uh, a super high quality financial advisor that has a, a large minimum. So yeah, I'm, I'm trying to push up the, um, the the minority and the underserved communities, which is very similar to what I was trying to expose in my senior thesis. I love it. I love it. And I think, again, you know, what you're doing through Zenith and, and how you're doing it, as I told you, I was actually worked as a financial advisor for a couple of years. Right. So it's, uh, I learned a lot. It was an incredible experience. Shout out to all my friends at Edward Jones. They're all very, very great people. It just was not for me. Finance was not something I wanted to do for the rest of my life. And at 24, having those thoughts, I was like, "Eh, this is probably not going to be a great thing. So I left eventually, started my own business in some capacity. So here we are now. But I do think, you know, again, there, there is a huge, huge underserved market. And 
when you add up all those dollars, the number gets pretty big, right? You know, it's not like it's, it's this crazy idea. So you start this, what was it like? You know, you had the idea to start it to help the underserved market, help minorities, as you said, people that have this access problem, which is a really interesting way of putting it. How do you go about starting this type of business, especially from scratch? That's a great question. Um, I, I originally tried to build out this segment of what I'm doing now in my prior firm, but the structure, the mechanics, the fees, like it didn't, it didn't work. Yeah. So I became convinced that I'd have to, you know, start it from scratch. And I learned how to create the business and add technology and compliance and register with the state, like from the LLC formation all the way up to profitable business, because we you know, created a new business at Carnegie and we moved all the clients. So I, I had the knowledge of how to like get mm -hmm. the business structure in place and create offerings that people could purchase and pay for. Um, so yeah, that's where I started. And the first, I had a three month non-compete. So in that first three months, I kind of got Zenith on board and, and got it ready to go. And then in September of last year, we launched and, you know, I, I had kind of hinted to a couple of people that I was doing what I was doing, you know, trying not to break my non-compete, obviously, but um, you know, people started to become aware and initially a couple people like gave, gave me a, a chance to help them, you know, create plans or invest or, um, better manage their savings management and, and, and their cash. And, um, you know, that grew, uh, like a referral base. And as I provided quality service to one person, they introduced me to another. Um, so it's, it's grown really organically. Um, I broke even last month as, as we talked about just, so in six months, um, you know, and I think that that's a credit to number one, there's, there's clear demand uh, mm -hmm. from this, this part of the, you know, from this demographic, right? These demographics, I should say. And then, you know, the, the, the barrier to entry, like I said, this is a very commoditized space. So the services and the, and the technology that services this industry is not overly expensive. So breaking even doesn't mean that I'm generating like hundreds of thousands of dollars in revenue, but, um, you know, so it's it, it, it's a dynamic of those things that's allowed me to kind of get to this point. But um, yeah, I, I've, I've gotten I've learned more from my clients than I've been able to deliver value to them. I feel like right. They've they've given me so much feedback and encouragement and ways to make the business better that, um, you know, it's helped me grow and it's helped me attract other clients by being more clear or, um, you know, making sure I'm catering to the things that they want or making sure that I'm soliciting feedback in the right way. So yeah, it's 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 really been really organic. I think the next stage of growth for me is you know taking these learnings from what I've kind of developed from these initial clients and these early adopters and creating that into a a, a package and deliverables that I can deliver to you know a wide audience um, through educational materials and courses and um, other kind of classwork that um, you know can benefit a, a much broader population than the one that I'm currently serving, which is definitely the mission, right? I want to help millions of people. I love it, man. I love it. And if there's anything I can do to help you help a million people, I'm I'm all for it. Um, so I think, you know, again, there's there's such a need for it. And as you said, it's a testament. Also want to say, I'm, I'm sure, yes, the 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 market is there, but I'm sure the hard work that you're putting in is, is uh, very existent as well. I'm sure there's a very big portion of how you've become so you've become successful in my words you know so you you can use what you'd like but breaking even in six months is incredible especially with two of those months everybody being stuck at home i don't know if that makes it easier or makes it harder but it's definitely it makes it something and uh, no matter what you did man kudos to you on that and you you talk about the non-compete again going coming from the business it's always funny hearing financial advisors talk about non-competes because 
let's be honest, they all break them in some capacity. So it was always very funny to me when someone left or came. It's like, oh, how did you all of a sudden find $3 million? It's like, oh, no, they found me. It's like, oh, okay, cool. Sounds good. Not here to not here to point fingers. But you um, you said you're, you're structuring it for people of, you know, students, of minorities, of young professionals. So obviously, as you said, you know, you're trying to help people that don't have an average of $18 million. You're capable of breaking even. And as you said, it's not like you're making a million dollars yet, but it's because the, the technology and the services are a little less expensive. How How is the business set up? Like, you have to obviously make money because if you make money, then you can help more people. It's very easy. That's just kind of how it works. So how is it set up? What are the fees and the structures? Maybe you don't have to tell us the exact numbers, but how is it set up that it allows you to make the money that you need to provide the service that you can without completely overloading yourself and needing a million clients to make sure that you're, you're making the kind of money that you want. Right. That's a great question. So I've structured it in a way that can hit all three of those groups that you mentioned, right? So kind of the, the student, the young professional and the, the minority. Um, there's three packages that we deliver um, our services to. And it's all with the idea that, you know, building wealth should be simple and we're going to keep it simple, but we're going to try to make it easier, right? As my mm-hmm. um, coach in college taught me like, you know, Jason, the, the, the playbook is simple, but like executing the place is not easy. Um, so we're trying to make it easier for people. And we do that through three packages, learn, grow and freedom. So learn is really to start to understand your your options financially and uh, making sure you have the concepts um, that you need to understand the different choices you can make with your finances to grow your net worth or achieve your goals. Um, that's a, a, a very low cost offering. Um, that can, you know, that students are currently using, um, you know, foundations, nonprofits that can be rolled out to a a broad range of people. Um, Grow is really structured for uh, people who want that more one-on-one relationship, uh, want a bona fide plan to see how they can best use their surplus money. So their income minus their expenses to uh, invest or pay down debt or invest in themselves or save um, most effectively to to create long-term wealth. Um, and then freedom is really, a, you know, a combination of grow plus, um, you know, having some kind of plan in place to stop working and change your relationship with money, hence the name freedom, to detach your time from money. So, you know, you don't have to work or go to your job. I don't want to call it retirement, but that's kind of what it is, right? So it's a point in time where you start to live off your invested assets and other things that are producing income for your life. Um so those are, those are a range of prices. The, the grow package is $350 a quarter. The freedom package is $650 a quarter. Um, the learn package is kind of debatable depending on the, the audience that I'm working with, but mm-hmm. it's typically covered not by the person using the service, but by a school or a foundation or nonprofit. Um, so, you know, I structured it as an LLC. So, you know, I do want to make profit and mm-hmm. I think business profits should be used for good. Uh, I, I'm, you know, I know about like the benefit B Corp and mm-hmm. these other things inside, you know, even creating a nonprofit um, are cool. But um, if I think if I say that I want to use business profits for good, I think that that and I show that I am and I'm reinvesting it into um, delivering more education and more service. Um, that's most beneficial for me, but also my constituents, right? Because I'm not relying on fundraising, not relying on any type of, you know, government, you know, breaks and, and tax incentives or anything like that. Um, you know, I'm purely using the, the, the positive dynamics that the business is creating to create a better offering and personally benefit as well. Um, yeah. so yeah, I, I think that the 
I don't know. If, does that answer your question? Yep. hundred percent. hundred percent. I was just kind of curious how, how the business was structured in some capacity. And, you know, you're talking about fees before and how all of that worked out. And now it's just pretty much a flat fee. It seems like, um, it's not, you know, 1% of all your this or half a percent of all your that it's uh it's very structured to the point where it seems like it's educationally based. So as you said, you know, learn is that first package, but I'm sure you're teaching people a lot in the freedom package as well and getting everybody to understand, you know, what their opportunities are moving forward and how they could take advantage of their specific situation or how they can improve their specific situation to move on to the next package, almost like level, excuse me, leveling up, which I think is pretty cool. And so with, you know, this whole conversation, obviously we started with your football career. Now we're on to your finance career. What did you learn in your football career? Maybe in Princeton, at Princeton, you know, what did you learn throughout football that you've been able to carry forward to what you're doing now to make you, you know, again, within six months, being able to break even with your business? Yeah. So, I mean, the, the first lesson I've learned is, is hard work from not just football, from all sports. Really, it makes a difference, right? Think about the last time you put in hard work or 10x work or whatever, and there was a clear outcome, right? It's it's so apparent when you work hard that there's going to be rewards for you. Um, I think working smart is another dynamic of that, but you figure that out as time goes on, right? So, you know, the the results I saw in the weight room, really in football and college, were what propelled me to be able to do my and excel in my position at outside linebacker. Like I was I was undersized. Uh, I was taking on 300 pound guys. Like look at I mean you probably can't tell right now, but yeah, I'm like 200 pounds. Um, so the weight room really helped me and I had to put in a ton of work to, um, get to that point. It's the same thing with Zenith, right? The more work I put in to deliver value to clients or optimize my website or, um, create like value add content for people to consume, I see clear benefits, right? People are growing their net worth and they stay, they are visualizing how they can get better, um, much easier when I put in like more work to create a, like a very obvious financial plan or they're responding to education and saying like, Hey, I invested in that because of what you said. And like, it's done great. Or, um, you know, I'm getting more website clicks and people reaching out for consultations. Right. So, um, yeah, hard work is number one, but, but two is really, um, listening and, and, and soliciting feedback. And this is something that I've really, I started to learn in football and basketball, but it's really gotten amplified, honestly, in my marriage, right? So um, like listening to coaches and implementing feedback or listening to your wife and like taking feedback and, and, you know, changing what you're doing is so important in football. Like it was Jason, like you're taking a false step with your, your foot on out of your stance. It's causing you to delay your, you know, your reaction to the play by a half second. And therefore the running back gets outside and scores a touchdown. Like, so I changed my footwork the next week, you know, I, I'm able to shed the block and make the tackle for a loss. Right. And it's, it's very clear. Right. And like, that was only because we watched film with my coach. He gave me feedback and I listened to it and made it a change in my own actions. Right. I didn't have to make that change. If I didn't, I may have gotten benched, but maybe not. And I just would have let my team down. Same thing with Zena, right? Like my first client, um, you know, my value proposition wasn't so clear on the front end. So she said, Hey, Jason, like you should think about like doing um, more clearly defining the deliverables and like the timeline around the service so that I, you know, because before I started, I wasn't really clear about what you could do for me. But now that I'm in it, like I get it. So you should, you should. So I changed it and I changed my, my, and I, I solicited feedback from other clients, but 
I, I, I listened and I changed like the, the way that I delivered the value proposition on the website and in person mm -hmm. when I talked to people. And I've seen an like I've seen people convert faster into the business um, than you know they were doing before I received this feedback. So that's I mean that's huge, and that that's that's a learning that I don't think I would be able to take that kind of coaching or feedback or I don't want to say criticism because it was from a positive spirit, but um, had it not been for sports and me you know getting um, you know solicited and unsolicited feedback from coaches throughout my entire career. And yeah, exactly. And I think that's why that's why I wanted to ask that question, because I knew there was an answer somewhere. I always think, you know, sports can teach us so much in multiple different fashions, in many different ways, and really understanding where the positives are. We talked about the bond between you and your teammates and what that was like and being able to go through the trenches. And, and you know, as you said, I think toiling away in the weight room when you're one and nine and being able to do that together. What does misery love? First off, it loves company, but also the fact that you're able to grow together. And as you said, and being able to take that feedback as you did from your coaches, from people that know, from clients, the people that you're trying to attract in some way, shape or form. So I think obviously you did the best possible thing there was listen. And then that allowed you to, you know, become more successful over time. Now, some people give feedback and it's bad, um, but some people get feedback and it's good. And you just kind of have to figure out what works for you personally. And clearly you were able to take some of that good feedback and now make yourself even more successful for it. So what, um, these last couple months, you know, you start a business in September and then by March, the world shuts down and the Mar the world has been shut down and it looks like it will be at least for another couple weeks. How has that affected you personally and how has it affected the business um, positively or negatively? So, Michael, I'm, I'm, I'm blessed to uh, be a homeowner in Philadelphia with my wife. We've got a nice house and a dog. So personally, you know, I've, I found a lot of comfort in the fact that I've got a nice home that I can spend time with with my wife and, you know, my family. Um, this time has really taught me what's important in life. And, you know, um, maybe not taught, but just further illustrated. Yeah. Right. Reinforced. So a lot of reinforce. Yeah, that's the word. Um, you know, I, I it, you know, it's showing me that I can still be happy and find happiness when I'm sitting here reading and like having a conversation or a breakfast with my wife or, um, you know, making woodwork in the basement and creating this, you know, a new desk, like, um, rather than like running around and, and going to bars with friends or acquaintances even, um, or, um, you know, doing other things in, in the world that uh, I'm spending money on, but may not necessarily be worth it. Mm -hmm. Um, so it's been really, um, you know, it's, it's kind of, it's been a, a great reset and teaching moment, I think, for me personally. Um, I also do realize like people don't have the same, um, you know, reality that I do, right? One of my friends, both his parents came down with COVID and um, it was really stressful. And I was, you know, trying to be there for him as much as possible in conversations. But like the reality was like they were sick and it was, it was really stressful for him. So um, there's a ton of people going through that right now and other people suffering from job loss and, um, you know, not, not making money anymore, which is really painful, uh, especially when the mortgage is due each month or the rent or whatever is due. Um, you know, for me, I've been blessed from a professional standpoint that people are really thinking about their money in this environment, right? Like they, things are going on. They, they either think there's an opportunity to invest and, and make money for the future, or they're saving more money and they, they want to think about what to do with those savings, or they don't have money or income anymore because their job is shut down and they need to figure out how to kind of survive. Um, or they're entering the workforce in a student's case, they're entering the workforce and maybe their offer got rescinded or 
there's some uncertainty and they want to figure out how they'll be able to support themselves coming out of school. So people are focused on what their money is doing for them right now. And I think that makes Zenith really relevant. Um, so like I said, March was my break-even date. April, you know, I tripled my revenue from March to, to April because I think people, you know, this is this is so on their mind right now. And, you know, this period is one where people sit back and they're like, wow, I'm saving and I'm doing this and XYZ. Um, but I want to get to the next level. How do I do that? Wow, I just saw Jason's Instagram post. Like, let me let me contact him. Or, you know, my, my clients are referring me to people that they're having conversations with right now. And, um, you know, we're able to meet and, and, and uh, I can determine that I can add value to their life. So professionally, it's been great. We'll see what May brings. Um, it's, it started off well, and uh, I'm super blessed in that regard. I think that that is also another uh, reason that entrepreneurship is important. And that's a big part of our, um, you know, financial literacy and education, right? Like being an entrepreneur is a very viable um, career choice. And you really have the ability to control your outcome uh, a lot more as an entrepreneur than you do working for a company. Um, or living on some kind of pension or you know family assets mm -hmm. or whatever. Um, so you know I'm 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 definitely blessed. But this was you know this I'm not going to say I saw this coming, but like this was premeditated from the fact that I took a leap of faith to bet on myself and my own talents and my own work ethic to start a business that you know could maneuver its way through an environment like this versus being subject to you know my uh, you know my employer saying like hey we're closing our doors for the mm -hmm. next couple months. Exactly. It allows you the opportunity to go do whatever you want. You can still go out and get sales, right? You know, you can still go out and talk to people and maybe not, you know, just just educate, you know, help others. You know, as you've said, you you have been able to gain relationships through relationships. And that's that network effect. That's that spider web effect where you're a really great person helping someone else. They're obviously going to tell their friends. Hopefully they told all their friends. And then that's Hopefully. the way you, you can possibly just grab a couple more of them and just help them and educate them and get them to understand what's going on financially in their lives, but also just in general and, and how they can prepare for something in the future, which I think is very important. And so talking about the future, what are, what are some future goals? Um, you know, when are you going to hit a million? When, no, I'm kidding. Uh, well, you know, what, what are some of the future goals that you have coming up for the business and, and, and even personally? Yeah. So, um, I've, uh, I've been reading this book. Um, it's called 10 X. I actually referenced it a little bit earlier from Grant Cardone. Um, it's very like cookie cutter kind of sales or inspirational messaging, but I need that reinforcement sometimes. It gets me juiced up. Um, and, um, you know, he's, he's really inspired me to think about all my goals and just like literally putting a 10, 10 X to each goal. Right. I even started calling my wife's new nickname is 10 X because she's been like telling me like, no, you need to think bigger. <laughs> um, so, um, yeah, by, by, so I, my, I had a goal to break even by March, which, uh, which I did now my goal, uh, my next six month goal is to 10 X the revenue that I had in March for September. So a year into the business, I'll be at a certain point. Um, and then my long-term goal after that is to, like I said, I want to create a million dollars of net worth for my clients, right? So either through planning, saving, uh, investing or paying down debt, you know, the, the people in our network by September will um, have created, um, uh, you know, a million dollars in additional wealth. Um, and then I want to create billions of dollars of, of wealth for people over the next five years. And that means probably reaching about a million people through education or um, working one on one. Um, I think that, you know, the market has been defined for a business like mine by services like Robinhood and Betterment and kind of these 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 fintech apps that are making the investing process more democratized and, and accessible. 
Um, so, you know, I think there's a, there's a huge opportunity to engage the users of those, of those um, technologies to further educate them and help take them to the next level. Um, so yeah, that's, that's my five-year goal. My, my long-term goal is to put Zenith in a position where it can you know, be the go-to source for financial advice and education for um, the broader community. So um, you know, not just people underserved by financial services, but everybody. And um, you know, I don't know if it's me that takes Zenith to that point, right? I think there's going to have to be some kind of partnership or um, you know, sale or something to help me kind of reach that level of scale. But um, you know, that's that's certainly the goal, and I, I want to be here for the whole thing. Um, so, so yeah, I love it, man. Billions. That's a good good place to uh, good place to start, man. I love it. Well, congratulations to you for everything. I'm very confident that you'll hit that. September goal. I'm very, very confident. Um, and I'm sure you'll even surpass it. So we'll see what happens there. But Jason Ray, founder and CEO of Zenith Solutions, former defense or defensive division one football player at Princeton. You you were a defensive player, so never mind. I, I can leave that one in. All Ivy League right. 2013 Ivy League champ, all around great guy. Jason, really appreciate your time today, man. Yeah, thank you, Michael. I appreciate it. Thank you all so much for listening to this episode with Jason. As I said, you could tell he's just such a nice dude. And I'm absolutely grateful that he went to Princeton, which is about 20 minutes from my house, which is kind of cool. Um, but yeah, Jason was just such a great guy. So make sure to follow him and Xena Solutions on all of the social media and the websites down below. Please also make sure if you can give us a five-star review. It is super super helpful to get more people to view the show, see the show, love the show, and hear these stories like Jason. So thank you all so much for your time. It's the only thing we don't get more of. So I appreciate you giving me some of yours and I hope you make it a wonderful day.